Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that explores the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm Patton McDowell, and my goal is to help you advance along your leadership path with practical advice and actionable resources that you can literally put into place right away. And I'm excited on that note to introduce this episode with Dr. Will Sparks, who has literally studied the characteristics of good leadership. And his 20 years of research has culminated with a fantastic book called Actualized Leadership. And Will and I will talk about many practical applications of his research and some of the tools we can use to be a better leader. As you'll hear shortly, he's going to help you not only amplify your positive leadership traits, but perhaps more importantly, identify those negative traits, which he calls your shadow side, so that you can be more aware of it and do something about it. As always, the resources Will and I discuss are linked to on the associated webpage for this episode. And don't forget, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast so you can enjoy more content just like this. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Will Sparks. Will, thank you for joining me on the path. Hey, thanks, Pat. It's great to be here. I'm excited about this conversation, known you for a long time, and your work is perfect for the leadership theme that this podcast is focused on. And I guess before we get into some of the topics that I think are going to help our listeners literally right away embrace their own leadership journey, let's talk about your journey, you know, uh, your path to your current leadership and success uh, certainly has intersected with the nonprofit community and maybe how it now affects the, the research, the teaching, the consulting that you do now. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, there may be on two different levels I would answer that. Um, the first is, is that I, I do a, a fairly active uh, consulting in the nonprofit world. Um, they're from, uh, you know, they're, they're nonprofit uh, organizations that provide healthcare services, uh, religious organizations, um, uh, arts and craft services for uh, children, um, animal rescue organizations, you know, higher ed, other universities. So I could go on and on about the, the organizations that I've worked with and continue to work with in addition to the for-profit um, organizations that I've consulted with and, and uh, been involved in applied research efforts over the years. Um, the, for me, the biggest takeaway of that is that the dynamics and principles of human behavior uh, the leadership framework uh, that I've that I've researched and validated over the last 20 years, um, a lot of that data comes from the nonprofit world, um, and it, it is the exact same as the for-profit. So I think, at least in the in the area that I'm involved in around leadership, um, team dynamics, organizational culture, board governance, it's been my experience um, that those are very much the same. I mean, I think that the, the framework and the dynamics for the most part are almost identical. I think maybe the one difference that I've noticed the most is at the board level, uh, when you compare nonprofit to a for-profit, for-profit, uh, there's so much uh, oversight now that's provided, uh, and rightly so, for corporate boards, uh, that there are very precise skill sets and there's an eye toward diversity and inclusion that often impact uh, selection of directors as well as uh, their prior or current business experience, whether or not they're sitting CEO, CFO, with cyber now, CIOs are very much in demand. Right. And that contrasts to the nonprofit, which you often see uh, maybe, you know, donors or people that are very driven by the mission of the organization uh, that are involved at the board level, and they may or may not have the kind of technical experience. And so that can create a, a different kind of um, dynamic and challenge uh, from a board level. So you know, that, that's one level. And then the, the personal journey that I share in the, in the first chapter of my book, Actualized Leadership, I think is, you know, it's out there. There's a TED Talk, The Power of Self-Awareness, that talks about the impact that um, my advisor had on me and, and really kind of um, helping me identify my shadow, much to my chagrin at the time, but it ended up life-changing. <laughs> right. And so uh, that journey continues as well. Well, the book is fantastic. It was one of my favorites in my 
2019 best reads list that I'm going to be publishing uh, here shortly. And you said it very well. What you have learned in every sector absolutely applies to the nonprofit sector in which I am working and looking forward to unpacking kind of the implications of both staff and board leadership in, in our sector based on what you've learned. Uh, you do did indeed publish Actualized Leadership this year among all the things you've got going on. And Will, as you know, my podcast focuses also on productivity. How do you keep up with all the things you're doing? Are yeah. there any technologies, uh, platforms, uh, things that you use to, to keep yourself kind of ahead of the game? I, I wish I could give you a, a great answer to that and something that sounded sexy and sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> the reality is I don't. If you saw my desk right now, it's pretty much covered with different stacks that make sense to me, but probably not to anyone else. So I'm, organization is not my strong suit. But I'll tell you what I do think helps me um, stay productive is a very profound insight that my mentor, Dominic Mineta, shared with me uh, 25 years ago. And I think about this almost every day. He, he said that we don't have a time management problem in this country. We have a priority management problem. And so in wow. underlying that is his notion that we always have enough time for our number one priority. Um, and if we want to figure out what that is, uh, what do we always find time to do? And so uh, many of us may espouse that our priority is writing or, or whatever, but if we're always on social media and we always find time for updates or to see what else is going on in the world with our friends, then, you know, we have to, I think we need to be honest with ourselves that perhaps social media is our number one priority or whatever that may be. And so I'm very mindful of that. So I think that um, for me, I, I have a, a priority of what I want to accomplish. And um, I try to, I, I'm an early riser. I get up usually around 4.30 or 4.45. Um, and I, I try to get a head start on the day and, and um, I don't work well after six. Uh, I just don't. I, I just have found my rhythm. Some people work well at night. Sure. Other people are morning people. I'm a morning person for sure. But keeping in mind that, you know, we always have enough time for our number one priority. And so if my priority is to write and publish a book, then I make sure that that's where I'm investing my time. And if it's something else, then I, you know, that's fine. But uh, I always pay attention to what I find time to do every day because that's a great insight into what's really important to us. Well, uh, great points. Uh, I have recently joined the 5 a.m. club as well and have found <laughs> a definite increase in productivity. Yeah. Love your emphasis on prioritization. You know, we all have time. It's a matter of what we do with it. And you yeah. have been intentional with that. Your book also references, I think we have a mutual favorite author in Cal Newport, the fact that deep work is something yes. that I think too many of us don't do, uh, largely yeah. because of the digital distractions. So you uh, absolutely made that point in actualized leadership. Um, well, thanks for sharing that, Will. I think none sure. of us have, have uh, perfect, perhaps we never perfect productivity, but it is a journey that we're on and we're going to try to get better. And you have proven that to be the case. Let me start with a, a question that was most provocative you raise in your book. And I admit, I have been in that camp of strengths finders. We Let's lift up our strengths. Let's don't dwell on our weaknesses. And that kind of just feels like a positive dynamic as a leader I want to have and for my organization. So why in this strengths finders world, Will, are you suggesting that we should also be looking at our, quote, shadow? Well, uh, I, so I'm, I strongly believe that an overplayed strength um, – can often become a derailer uh, for ourselves. And so, you know, in my view, knowing our strengths and playing to our strengths when we can is a very important part of self-awareness, but it's really one half of the self-awareness equation, if you will. And so the other half of that is knowing what I call your leadership shadow, where you go under stress, the impact that has on your personal productivity, your professional and personal relationships, and certainly uh, on others in an organizational setting from a culture perspective. So, my view is that, you know, we, we like to be validated and we've, we've, in my view, uh, we've, we've kind of uh, mistake the concept of self-awareness as only knowing and, and validating our strengths. And so people that are truly aware are comfortable, um, not just acknowledging their, their shadow, but Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychologist said, 
you know, we had to embrace it. We, we, he said it was better to be whole than perfect. And what he meant by that was that perfection is impossible. And, and when we try to always be right and we always want to be perfect and we always have the last say in every argument, you know, those are the kinds of things that actually um, disconnect us from others in both our professional and personal lives. So it's being willing to own that darkness and, and integrate it into who we are uh, releases us into our highest potential. So in my mind, it's, it's counterintuitive for many of us, but it's absolutely true that if we want to realize our highest potential and, and, and live and lead in our brightest light, we, we have to have the courage to acknowledge and, and own our darkness. Well, and you, you have a great quote, and, and I, I forgive me if I'm not directly uh, re-quoting it, but if, if we don't manage our shadow, our, our shadow will manage us. In other words, we try to push it to the back. Your point is it's going to come out one way or another. Yeah, we actually, when we deny it, or we, we, we often project it onto others, so people should pay very close attention to what they intensely love or hate in others, and it's very uh, likely that that is giving you a line of sight into your own personal shadow. And an example for me is that I'm an asserter in my style. And so I have a high need for power and control. Um, and there's some really good things about that. And there's some really negative things. And so, right. uh, but I, I'm usually fairly laid back. And what I notice and really dislike in others are people that are arrogant and that are formal and pompous and full of themselves. And yet if I'm, if I'm completely honest with myself, um, when I'm at my worst, I'm like that. So it's actually giving me an insight into my own shadow. So when we project or we deny or deflect, uh, we actually feed the shadow. And, and as we, it's like imagine pushing, a, you know, kind of a beach ball, trying to push it deeper underwater. You know, the harder you push, the, the, the more it's going to pop out at some right. point. And that, and that's the same kind of metaphor I like to use with the shadow piece. So. You know, we can we can deny it and, and we can ignore it. But when we when we do that, we, we feed it. Um, so, yes, if we don't if we don't process and manage our shadow, it will process and manage us. And Carl Jung was very clear that um, for, for those that are you know kind of blissfully unaware, uh, when things don't go their way, they want to chalk it up to fate. You know, fate was against me or, or wasn't in the cards for me to be successful or to be happy or be paired or whatever it may be. And Jung uh, was very clear that there's no such thing as fate. Uh, it's our shadow that hasn't yet been recognized and integrated uh, in, in these negative patterns that we often experience in our lives is the shadow kind of uh, rattling the cage waiting to be acknowledged um, and integrated. Uh, it's, it's well put. And I, I, I look forward, we'll, we'll unpack all three of the leadership styles that you articulate in the book and in, in all of your teaching um, but I'm struck by the fact that while you brought scientific rigor to your research over 20 years, it, it strikes me in reading the book, Will, that it, it's a personal journey for you, that you still are very much engaged in exploring your own shadow. Is that a fair observation? It is. Um, I, I have, um, you know, I, one thing that I, that I try hard to do, and, I, and I'm not always uh, successful at this, but I try very much to have what is known in Taoism or in Zen as a, as a beginner's mind. Uh, I think right. as soon as we think we're an expert in something, um, you know, we, we, close thing, we close our learning off. Um, and so we, we have a very fragile ego that we, we don't want to, you know, be wrong or be questioned or challenge any of our assumptions. And so uh, I, when people introduce me sometimes at a speaking event, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, an expertise in leadership. And I always correct them when I get the microphone and say, I'm a student of human behavior and a student <laughs> right. of leadership and trying to stay on that journey. And so I, I hope that the, the book, um, there's certainly some, a lot of the feedback I've gotten has been that it is a nice combination of, of theory and science with the kind of validity and reliability of the assessment. But it also uh, weaves in my, my journey along this path, which, which has been very nonlinear up and down for sure. Um, as well as interviews with leaders that provides a more qualitative or subjective insight, uh, but allows, I think, the, the concepts to connect with the reader uh, in a less academic way. Will, how do you practice reflection? Uh, are there certain tactics? I imagine listeners, yeah. um, we, we kind of have our head down sometimes. We're, we're moving forward fast, but you have, I know, employed practices of reflection. How do you do that? 
Well, I, so every day I've got, I've got two dogs. I've got a, a 90 pound Alaskan Malamute Thor and recently, <laughs> recently married man. I have uh, happily adopted a 10 pound Cavapoo named Shelby. And so okay. I, I'm walking Thor and Shelby usually between 4:45 and five in the morning when there's no one out. Um, and I'll take a, a you know, sometimes a, a little bit of a longer route to, to think through the day to process maybe something that's on my mind. Um, you know, I, I have a, a fairly strong faith, certainly by no means perfect, but I, I often take that time to, to pray or meditate as well and really think about the day ahead. And then I have the, the luxury of getting to, to do the same thing in the evening. And so I take that time to decompress uh, with, with them and just kind of, you know, the, it's great to, to be around animals because they're completely mindful with their environment. Um, they're not, you know, they're not distracted. They're not worried. They're just absolutely in the moment. Um, and the, the little things that we tend to miss or ignore, you know, they take great delight in, and it's really a great way to, for me to, to reset. So, so that's kind of a daily practice that I have. Nice. Um, and then I, I love the mountains. Um, I love to get up into Western North Carolina and, uh, hike there and, and spend time and, in solitude. I think that, you know, one of my mentors who, you know, very well, Peter Browning, um, you know, said that there's a big difference between being busy and being effective. And I, I always reflect on that. So when I can, I I'll spend, you know, two or three or four days, um, alone in the mountains writing and, and doing some reflection and just sort of decompressing. I don't do that as much as I used to, but I, I try to carve out time and it, whether you're a, want to be at the beach or stay at home or be in the mountains or whatever that may be for an individual, it's critical that we find that time for solitude to renew and reflect. It allows us to be strategic and I think much more proactive or intentional in our decisions. And if we don't take that time, we often go through life reactive and, you know, 10 or 20 years flies by pretty quick and you look around and say, how did I get here? Or this wasn't what I had originally intended. And so I think that Solitude provides that pause to to really reset or recalibrate to make sure we're we're living uh, the life that that we've desired. That's uh, it's great advice and well put. And I often say that you know you, you're taking charge of your path forward by having a practice of reflection. And if we're waiting for our organization to do it for us, you know we'll wait a long time. I think many uh, younger, newer professionals in the nonprofit sector lament the lack of professional development, coaching, um, even evaluation that their organization is able to provide. And I'm like, well, it's up to you. And you clearly have established individual practices and not waiting on someone else to help you do it. That, that's right. I mean, you can't, I mean, s- sitting around and, and waiting for someone to, to make you a better person, in my view, is kind of a, a classic um, symptom of codependency. I mean, you yeah. know, you're being dependent on someone else. Look, we are, I mentioned Dr. Mineta earlier in the talk here about the, we always have enough time for our number one priority. The other bookend of that, uh, that he taught me is that we're totally responsible for ourselves, period. Um, and if we're not happy, make a change. I, I, I remember in 1996 or 97, early in the program at GW, uh, working for him and, and, and coming over and complaining about a professor and an assignment. And um, he would not have any of that. He wouldn't indulge me. He said, look, if you don't like the program, then drop out, <laughs> Either, you know, or shut up and, and do the work. Um, but you're not going to come over here and complain. And so, you know, he's like, you're totally responsible. If you want to move back to the Carolinas and not finish the degree, do it. If you want to stick it out and, you know, and, and realize your potential, then, you know, you're going to buckle down and do the work. And so it was really, Tough love. Uh, tough love, but a great reminder that we ultimately, we are totally responsible for ourselves, period. Yeah, could not agree more. And I think that's just good advice for anyone on the, the path to leadership in whatever sector, certainly nonprofit uh, in particular here. Yeah. Let's, let's unpack the three leadership styles. As I thought about them, I, I can imagine just about every listener um, falls into one of these categories and likely myself included thought, Hey, if I'm in one of these categories, I must be in, in a good position. But I think you can remind us maybe some of the specific shadow elements to, to beware of. Um, and we'll talk about achiever, affirmer and asserters. Those are the three leadership styles that you uh, detail. 
So starting with achiever, you know, it, it makes sense that motivation in this category is, is achievement oriented, getting things done, organized, efficient, effective. All that sounds good, Will. So what could be the problem with someone being very achievement oriented? Yeah, so uh, great question. And if I can, let me just back up for a moment and just mention briefly, there are four theorists that the, the actualized leader framework is based on. And the first is Carl Jung, probably the most important, the Swiss uh, uh, psychologist who really identified uh, individuation, which was a forerunner of self-actualization, and also the shadow, which is paramount for this work. Right. Abraham Maslow, a lot of people know that name when they think of self-actualization. David McClellan, uh, the deceased Harvard psychologist who identified the three motive needs, and those are the needs that underlie the three styles that we're talking about, with achievement being the first. And then Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, a lot of great insights about human nature in that book. But for this, for the purposes of this conversation, his most important insight is his notion of paradoxical intent. And that means that the more we fear something, the more likely we are to experience it. And he said that's the tragic irony of the human condition. So here's the connection to the achiever. Well, those are all positive things that you just mentioned. I would add a few there. Detailed-oriented, they're focused. I mean, they're the drivers that are success and ambition. Uh, they're disciplined. Their famous achievers are, are Michael Jordan and uh, Ellen DeGeneres as a famous. Uh, she's been profiled by Harvard. But the shadow of an achiever is a fear of failure. And so under stress, uh, detailed-oriented becomes narrow-minded. Organized becomes inflexible. Thorough becomes obsessive. Uh, focus becomes critical. And so these shadow traits that, be, that uh, be, are manifested under stress. So when a person's triggered, when an achiever is triggered, those positive qualities that you mentioned go dark. And, and some of the common triggers for an achiever and the fear of failure shadow are things like ambiguity, the prospect of, of being wrong or not winning, a lack of perfection. All of these things really um, create this uh, intense reaction in the in the achiever style, and so um, in an organizational setting, they become the kind of classic micromanager uh, who fail to delegate appropriately. And when they're in that shadow state, failure becomes more likely to them. So we live into the paradox that uh, that Viktor Frankl talked about. And Carl Jung uh, referenced the same thing. He said it slightly differently. He said, we meet our destiny on the road we took to avoid it. And so that's the same, you know, we're driven for success. And yet if we let the fear of failure shadow overtake us, we we increase the probability that we're going to experience the very thing we're trying to avoid with the achiever style. Well, So so as an achiever, I I think clearly my example is going to motivate all of my colleagues, but in fact could be driving them crazy. Yeah, if, if, you are, if you're an achiever and you're in your shadow, then you typically micromanage um, and, and you'll just, you know, dive in and do the project yourself or the proposal or whatever the task at hand is. And it causes um, a great deal of, of, of passive aggressive uh, anger and irritation uh, among, the, among the organization. Yeah, that, it makes perfect sense. And, and... I can see organizations that, you know, the achiever's intention is very positive, but they probably, he or she can't understand why everybody else is not running with them. And in fact, perhaps some of their achievement traits are doing exactly what you suggest, which is creating as many problems as it is solving. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the next one, the affirmer. And again, uh, on the surface seems to be a very positive leadership style. The, as you note, they seek affiliation. They're creating, a. it seems to me, a team dynamic, uh, keeping everyone happy, maybe. But talk about that. While that sounds good, what are the potential negative consequences of someone who is too much uh, an affirmer? Yeah. So, they, so the, just for the achiever is recognition-driven. That's the primary driver. The affirmer style that you just referenced, they are relationship-driven. And so they are... Gotcha friendly, empathetic. They're very much a servant leader. And I see more affirmers in the nonprofit world than the achiever or the asserters. And so affirmers are driven by mission. They have the heart um, of a servant leader. And they they are warm, they're friendly, they're caring. 
Um, you know, they, they all of these wonderful qualities. They're listening. They're always willing to support and empathize and encourage. But the shadow of an affirmer, uh, which is the relationship-driven need, is a fear of rejection. And so from a leadership perspective, uh, friendly becomes conflict avoidant. Right. Uh, empathetic becomes indecisive. Helpful becomes overly accommodating. And so the, the real Achilles heel from a leadership perspective of an affirmer is that they tend to, because they're conflict avoidant, they tend to allow performance issues to fester, which drags down the overall performance of the organization. And so they've got to get out ahead of that and manage that. If, if an affirmer doesn't do that, I, and I've seen this happen in the nonprofit world where the board makes a decision to uh, make a change with the uh, executive director of a given organization or agency. And very often it was an affirmer style that because they were so nice and friendly, they failed to enforce performance standards. They failed to give critical feedback to their teammates. Um, you know, they failed to, to give that kind of uh, candid, uh, difficult conversations and because of that, they ended up experiencing the very rejection or separation they so feared, which in this case uh, could be, you know, released, being released from an organization. It's back to your point. I'm, I'm on the path trying to avoid this, and I run headfirst into what exactly you just described. Uh, yeah, it, 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 tragically, it, it plays out too often. And I, I have seen exactly the example you described, and, and often – the description from staff and board is everyone likes the person personally, but unfortunately by not recognizing that shadow, they were ultimately ineffective in the leadership role that was necessary for that job. Yep. Exactly. Right. Well, the third one, will you talk about, I think you put your yourself in the asserter category of leadership style. Yes. Uh, Power is the motivator. I'll let you, I'll let you unpack how you (laughs) interpret that. Yeah, so it, it's it's uh, the so the achiever's recognition driven, the affirmer is relationship driven, the asserter is results uh, driven, and their their power or their their need their high need is for power and control. And so, asserters um, are you know at their best, they're confident, they're decisive, they're candid, courageous, uh, but under stress, their shadow is a fear of betrayal, and so. Um, confidence can become arrogant. Uh, decisiveness uh, is often impatient, uh, controlling, blunt, skeptical. They tend to always look for the angle. Uh, asserters have a really hard time putting their guard down, being vulnerable, having authentic connections with others. Uh, it's, it's a challenge for them to ask for help. It's a challenge for them to admit that they're wrong. Um, and so th- these you know, while in the short term they're results driven and they get things done, their Achilles heel from an organizational perspective is creating codependency. And so uh, their organizational members are often afraid to challenge them or disagree with them. And so they sort of, you know, rule by decree and anyone that gets out of line can uh, experience the wrath of an asserter. And so there are a lot of positive qualities that go there, but if the individual doesn't uh, manage his or her shadow, then quite often what happens is that members of that organization, the first chance they get, they leave, they jump ship, they join a competitor, maybe a competitor right. uh, in the nonprofit world or whatever. And, and for the asserter, they will feel like that's the ultimate betrayal. I mentored that person. I gave them their first promotion or I've, you know, they've been with me for years and, and they, they do feel betrayed but if they're honest with themselves and they really reflect on the dynamic of what happened, uh, very often they have to realize that it was their, their kind of shadow and their controlling nature that led to the individual deciding to exit. It makes perfect sense. But you're right, often, and again, if we're not aware of that reality, we would simply feel the betrayal and not understand the root cause that we may be part of. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think it's especially hard for the asserter because asserters uh, just tend to be skeptical. And if I could just, you know, from my own personal journey, uh, dealing with with that, being aware of that and actively managing the skepticism that I had um, really changed my life. I mean, it transformed my relationships and it really transformed my life. And so, 
you know, if you're going through life and you've always got your guard up and you're, you're always looking, you know, for the downside or what the angle may be, and you're not willing to trust uh, individuals, then, you know, it, it becomes a pretty lonely life. Uh, and it, and you know, the, the, the walls that we think we've built up to protect ourselves actually become our prison. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's hard for the asserter to let his or her guard down. But when they do that, there's an entirely different level of authenticity and connection and ultimately performance, organizational performance or, or personal happiness, whatever the case may be, that becomes available only when uh, someone is willing to, to let that guard down and, and to be a bit more vulnerable. That's yeah, perfectly said. And it, uh, I, I'm impressed and, and glad to be educated, frankly, in all three of these leadership styles, because like everyone else, I'm either in a category or I'm working with others in the other two categories. I guess my question, Will, is, is it possible for us to, to be defined by more than one of these three? Could I be a bit of a achiever and an affirmer? Or do you find folks, as you test them and work with them, they clearly fall in only one of these categories? It's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, there are some people that are a 99% in one category. So an example, as you know, I recently got married and my wife, Erin, is about a 99 or 98% achiever, which is about as high as it goes. And so <laughs> right. very well defined for her. And, and, and it showed up when we travel or when we were getting ready for the marriage and the honeymoon. She literally had color-coded spreadsheets for the trip that dealt with reservations or dealt with, you know, outfits wow. or dealt with travel plans, you know, and I was just trying to remember, okay, if I take my debit card and my passport, you know, every, I can forget anything else. I'll be fine. And so it can be very well defined for some and others uh, it can be more of a mix. They, they may have a more balanced, uh, you know, need for all of those, but typically at the end of the day, there is one fear uh, that is that will be more dominant for the individual. So, you know, I have a low achievement score. It doesn't mean that I'm not ambitious or highly motivated. And I, I, right. think I, I right. have a pretty strong work ethic and I, I hope I do. Um, but, but failure is, is not, that's not driving me. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the fear of betrayal uh, that, that I've had to manage and, and still manage, uh, frankly, in my life. And so I think when you boil it down to what's the underlying, you know, fear, uh, typically there's one that is more pronounced than the other two. And that at, and at, at our worst, when we're really activated, that will be the shadow that um, emerges or erupts as the case may be. Yeah. That's a good way to define or distinguish maybe the one to be most careful about. And uh, you make such a good case for, again, coming into this discussion, I might have thought not, nah, you know, why worry about some of these negative things? Cause I want to remain optimistic and, and proactive, but you've convinced me we need to focus on our shadow side. And, but why do you see so many people continue to avoid uh, even addressing their shadow side? Uh, because it is, it's for, for many of us, it's, um, it's excruciating to have to take total responsibility for decisions and outcomes in our life. We would yep. rather, we would rather uh, blame others or fate. And so there's a, there's a well-known book by Eric Fromm, who was a famous uh, psychoanalyst called escape from freedom. And he said that you know, many of us tragically would rather forfeit freedom. If that meant we didn't have to be responsible for our, the negative things in our life, then we would forfeit freedom in order to be a victim. And so I, I think that that's part of it. My experience of the last 20 plus years is that affirmers are more willing to embrace the shadow side. They, they, and in fact, they can sometimes over identify with the shadow. And so my goal in this work is for an individual to have an accurate objective self-assessment and not to stay in the shadow for too long, but not avoid it outright either. And so I affirmers are more willing to do that. The asserter, is, you know, the asserter says, let me see your reliability and validity statement. And many, <laughs> and if I'm doing a multi-day program, many asserters sort of scoff, you know, in the day. And then after they've gone home and shown their report to their spouse or significant other, uh, they often come back in the next day and say, okay, you've got my attention. Uh, kind right, of right. They validation from somewhere else. But, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, 
painful. Uh, I think the reason we avoid it is because, you know, it, it's, it, it's a, one of these, it offers personal transformation, uh, but we have to be willing to go into the deeper end of the self-awareness pool. And, and some people are just reluctant to let their guard down and do that. And, and tragically, I think they miss the very authentic authenticity and, and, and real connection that they crave, speaking now just as an asserter, um, they crave that authenticity and crave the connection, but they're just not willing to say I'm wrong or I'm sorry or you know admit a mistake or acknowledge that they're not able to help someone. All of these are trigger that fear of vulnerability where more of the ego uh, and that kind of arrogance uh, comes out where we're going to solve the problem, we're going to fix everything, and uh, and that ultimately I think keeps us um, in our shadow. It's well put and. We can either drag it along behind us for our entire live life or lives, uh, or we can acknowledge it and, and turn it into a more positive aspect, which I think well, you have it's, made. It's the point. funny that you use that metaphor because there's a, there is a book called the little shadow book. And the author talks about the shadow is this bag that we all carry behind us. And the more we deny it and the more we ignore it or project it, uh, the heavier that bag gets. And sometimes uh, we don't, we're not even aware that we have the power uh, to, to, to let it go uh, and to really lighten our load if we're willing to do this trans, transformational work. Um, and I think tragically, folks are either aren't aware or they're simply not willing to do that and they, they spend their lives uh, carrying that. And that, that load can be expectations of others. It can be seeking everyone's approval if you're in a farmer. Uh, if you're an achiever, it can be trying to do more to prove worthiness. Um, and if you're if you're an asserter, it can be, you know, trying to keep our guard up to to avoid, you know, being feeling betrayed. And um, the more we do that, I think the heavier that load gets. Well, again, could not agree more. And I think it's just great food for thought for people on this journey of professional development and self improvement. Um, you've you've articulated the uh the strengths and shadow sides of certain leadership styles uh, maybe we can finish with uh your explanation or helping us understand the um the culture impact as we become nonprofit leaders and we have these uh self-acknowledged styles uh the book also helps explain the what kind of cultures that shadow side i guess will particularly create so maybe start again with the achiever which all three, as I said earlier, seem to have very positive connotation, but talk about what a quote detached culture is that likely is the result maybe of an achievement oriented leader. Yeah. So it's the, again, it's the tragic irony of the human condition that Frankel and Jung and Maslow talk about, but it's uh, the, the person that has the highest need for achievement and recognition and success. If they allow their shadow, their fear of failure, fear of failure shadow to drive their behavior, they create the lowest performing culture, which is detached. And so members um, are, are, they are physically or psychologically withdrawn from the, from the organization. Um, they, there's passive aggressive behavior. Uh, there's a fair amount of anger and apathy that shows up because they're tired of being micromanaged. Uh, they don't feel worthy. They don't feel like they're, they're being delegated for any stretch assignments or meaningful work. The, the achiever, when their shadow is activated, will often step in and redo the work or, you know, finish the project. And so they, they do the smart thing, which is just to check out, you know, and kind of uh, put it into neutral and coast along. And so you, you see that in the detached culture uh, when the achiever shadow is activated. For the, for the affirmer, it's a very different kind of culture. Uh, it's a it's a very warm and friendly culture, as you can imagine, a very warm and friendly leader. Right. But I call it a dramatic culture, and that's where there's a you know think about the the kind of quintessential drama symbol. There's a smiley face uh, kind of out front, and then there's a frown or sad face behind it. <laughs> right. That's the that's the icon I use for this culture because it's it's on the surface it seems warm and friendly, but beneath the surface there's a fair amount of frustration. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're not having crucial conversations. They're not enforcing performance standards. Uh, if, if your listeners are familiar with the Abilene paradox, which is a kind oh, of yeah. group thing where the, the group cannot manage their agreement, that's a classic um, kind of a, a symptom of a dramatic culture. 
And then finally, the assertor, uh, we talked about this a little bit, creates a dependent culture. And that's, you know, when they're, when they're in their shadow and they're in charge and controlling and arrogant uh, and blunt uh, with, with their teammates, then they really create uh, a, a culture that's grounded in fear and anxiety where you follow the leader, you don't question him or her, you salute and you get on board and you do what you're told and you try to keep your head down. Um, and uh, the most of my research over the last 20 plus years, most organizations, nonprofit, for-profit, religious, education, whatever across the board have a dependent culture because very often we see uh, asserters, you know, at, at leading organizations and they have to manage that uh, codependency if they want the organization to perform at their highest level. And so I have a, the, the final level of culture development is what I call dynamic. And that dynamic culture can correspond to all three styles as long as they are living and leading as an actualized achiever or an actualized affirmer or an actualized asserter. They create a dynamic culture where people feel their psychological safety, they're fully engaged, they trust and respect each other. Doesn't mean they're best friends, they may not vacation together, but they, they respect each other and there's candid direct communication that allows the group to deal with reality, to make decisions that are objective um, and to ultimately you know, work together. It's not without conflict. There can be conflict in a dynamic- Healthy conflict. Healthy right? conflict, exactly, that, that often leads to a better decision and a better outcome. Uh, it's a great analysis. As I think about organizations with, with, with which I've worked, you're absolutely right. I, I can think of examples in all three of the shadow categories of, of culture issues, um, but we're all trying to get to that dynamic that you described, the dynamic culture. And, and you make an interesting point in the book, Will, a couple of times that if we are going to be the kind of actualized leader that has a dynamic culture around us, we have to be comfortable with contradiction. And I was struck by that because you would think, no, I want to be very kind of solid in my direction. But talk about the, the comfort you need to have with contradiction. Yeah, so I've got a section in the book that asks the question, are you a walking contradiction? And right. that has a negative connotation because we think, well, that's a person who's two-faced or you know, they're, they don't, they're not, they lack integrity or something along those lines. But when it's taken in the concept of, Maslow and his notion of self-actualization, it's actually something to strive for so that a, a, uh, this kind of notion, he said, to the uninitiated, meaning those who don't understand self-actualization or actualized leadership, the individual appears to be a walking contradiction. Because let's just use the affirmer style for a moment. If you are always friendly and always empathetic and, and maybe don't enforce boundaries and you're overly accommodating and conflict avoidant, then you're, you're just staying in one arena, which is natural. But if you get out of your comfort zone and you marry friendliness and empathy and, and kind of generosity with candor and courage and the willingness to give direct feedback and to hold people accountable then that's this kind of notion of walking contradiction. So it's making peace with your shadow so that you're not driven out of fear. If you're, if I'm an actualized asserted, then I can be confident and decisive and competitive and candid, but also can be humble. Right. Um, I, right. I, I don't have to sit at the head of the table. Um, I can speak last instead of the first. I can change my mind. I can admit that I was wrong. And so that's that walking contradiction piece that I believe ultimately um, it corresponds to someone who is highly self-actualized in the context that we're discussing now. Well, Will, this is a great motivator to analyze both individual leadership style and the impact we have on our respective organizations. I guess as you coach leaders, um, what kind of advice do you give? And, and again, I know the book uh, leads to some good suggestions, but how do you generally help someone who is trying to improve their leadership ability? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a pretty basic question uh, that I typically ask, and that is, you know, what price have you paid for your shadow behaviors up to this point? And, you know, ultimately, if you're, I'm a little bit of, I, I, I was going to say if you're behaviors, but I, I like the psychodynamic work of, of, you, of Jung and Freud. Uh, I like the cognitive, rational cognitive therapy as well, which I think when you just get out ahead of your thoughts and you realize the 
how negative thoughts trigger emotions that lead to behaviors. And so, but, but at the most basic level, there's just this kind of behaviorist view, which is, you know, motivating ourselves when we realize that we can't lead the organization or have the life that we want um, if we're staying in our shadows. So I just ask a person to do a kind of a cost benefit analysis um, and then ask the question, what would be available to you if you manage that shadow, if you integrated it, um, and you were able to live at a more self-actualized level. And so that often will motivate a person. And this cuts across, you know, organizational life. Certainly there are professional uh, arenas as well. And so, you know, I kind of toggle back and forth with that with individuals that I'm coaching. So that's one area. Uh, if an individual takes the, the full uh, actualized leader profile assessment, they also get a score on what I call the nine attributes of actualized leaders. And in the book, I, I detail those. Um, I provide an interview with a leader uh, for each of those as well. And so I'm just looking at one right now. Let's just use hyper-focus, uh, which is a cognitive ability to establish and maintain kind of an intense focus uh, and passion on the task at hand. How do we, you know, and we have to have that passion and intensity to be our very, very best. And so the leader that I profile for that attribute is Fred Whitfield, who is the president and vice chairman and now minority owner of the Charlotte Hornets. And he's been Michael Jordan's right-hand man for, you know, 30 plus years. And so he's kind of learned from the best about how to get in the zone and how to perform with that intense concentration. And so he provides a great kind of qualitative personal um, details around that process. But in the full assessment, they get a score on, on that attribute. So if a person scores lower in one, for example, then uh, that would be a place that I might start to say, look, you scored low in solitude. Um, you know, let's talk about that. What what would be available to you if you were willing to spend more time reflection and reflection um, and the like? And so th those nine attributes provide a nice roadmap for making positive steps and growing our self-actualization, but really starts with just a basic question, which is what price have you paid? And, you know, can you get there from here? And if a person says, hey, it's, it's you know, I've paid a little bit of a price, you know, to quote Sinatra, I've had regrets. And, uh, but only a few, you know, too few <laughs> right. to mention. Well, then that person may not be motivated to change. And in fact, they, they may not need to. So I have no judgment around that. But it really starts with the basic question around, am I living and leading at my highest level? And if the answer is no, uh, then that opens up a conversation around why it's important to first acknowledge and then begin to integrate those darker aspects of our shadow. It's a great point and a great question, I think, as we record this in the end of uh, 2019. Um, a lot of folks are doing reflection around how the year went, particularly as they look forward to 2020 and the new right. decade. Right. Um, so I think, Will, among the great advice you're offering is you've got some tools like the ALP, I guess both a free version and a, a more premium version. Uh, is there any other kind of advice you might give a listener that is kind of yeah. processing this? If some if someone wants to take the free version, uh, they can just text. There's a free app. Uh, they can download it. If they text my name, Will Sparks, to 36260. So the number, the number you would be uh, dialing would be, or texting would be 362260. And they would, in the message, you would just put my name, Will Sparks. It can be all lowercase or all caps. It doesn't matter. Um, and if they text Will Sparks to 36260, then they will have an opportunity to download the app. It's free. And in the app, uh, they can click on the ALP survey and they can take the free version of that. Uh, they can watch my TED Talk from last year, The Power of Self-Awareness. There are a number of resources that are available on that app as well. Uh, they can order the book if they are so moved or they can order the full ALP and download some uh, developmental videos that go with that as well. So tried to make it a kind of a one, one stop uh, point of interface for all things actualized leadership. So that's probably the easiest way would be to, to download the app. Um, the book is available on, on Amazon um, and uh, certainly they can get it uh, that way as well. That's fantastic. We will absolutely detail that in the show notes 
So anyone driving right now does not have to veer off the road trying to capture <laughs> Don't your Don't advice. pull out the phone. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, Will, you're a prolific reader. Your book, in fact, I noted had a very cool appendix of books that relate to, I think, all nine of the attributes, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, best book you've read lately or any, any book you'd lift up among the many that you have uh, uh, read or recommended? I'd, I'd recommend uh, two books and uh, and one TED talk. And so the, the books I would recommend are not new. Um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl um, is the only the only book in the Wharton MBA leadership course that Mike Usain, Doctor Usain, teaches, and that's the textbook. So if you if your listeners want to have to approximate uh, what a Wharton MBA leadership class would be like. Uh, they can buy Man Search for Meaning, or they can download it. I, I wow. have it both an audio and, and hard copy. And then I, I'll tell you the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I know now is you know '89. I think it was published in the late '80s. Just haven't really been, in my view, a better overall capturing of here's how to be the most productive and most effective you can be. I'm not going to say it's absolutely comprehensive and all inclusive because nothing is. Right. Covey did such a great job with that. Um, and, and it's something that I still refer to today. And in fact, Covey references uh, Victor Frankl's uh, work in, in his book as well. So those would be the Excellent. two books, Man's Search for Meaning and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And then if you want a, some more media piece, uh, the TED Talk by Brene Brown, which is uh, entitled, the power of vulnerability, uh, especially if you are an asserter. Uh, this is now the most viewed TED Talk uh, ever. I think it's uh, getting close to 50 million views. Um, and it is, it's funny. She's such a great speaker. She's entertaining. Uh, but she's also got a very powerful message that, that really resonates uh, with folks. So the power of vulnerability from Brene Brown would be the TED Talk uh, I would recommend as well. Fantastic resources, Will. Thank you. Uh, this entire conversation is full of resources and great advice and things to ponder. So thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you, Patton. Appreciate it very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Will. And don't forget to link to the show notes associated with this episode so you can check out, among other things, how to get your hands on his great book, Actualize Leadership, as well as a link to his free Actualize Leadership profile, which is an assessment tool that you can take online and literally assess your leadership style right now. Find out whether you are an achiever, an affirmer, or an asserter, and perhaps more importantly, what are the associated shadow sides that you need to be aware of in each case. So many great applications to our nonprofit community and many of your organizations, whether you are in leadership or aspiring to lead at some point. Um, take advantage of this time and do a bit of self-evaluation so that you can indeed improve. Thanks, as always, for taking the time to listen to this episode, and I hope you'll share it with someone you know that's also on the path and could benefit from this discussion about nonprofit leadership. If you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and I'll look forward to connecting with you next time on The Path.